You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. I'm not really sure when when this started. Um, I know for my lifetime this has kind of been the case. Somewhere, somewhere in childhood, you start like identifying groups and labels of people. And then somewhere along the way, you yourself start identifying with groups and labels. I know that once you get to high school, especially if you're in a public high school, you, you, you look at people and you create these groups and labels and you find yourself sort of in one of them. Um, this past week, I tried to go back and look over the generations at how, on the one hand, those groups and labels kind of change, but how the whole idea, it, it doesn't change. For instance, let's pop back a couple generations. Let's go to like 1958, okay? Um, I'm just going to identify a couple of groups or labels of people that you might have found in school back in the 50s. Um, let's start with the smokers, Smoking was uh, fresh enough, if, if that's even able to be said, it was fresh enough at the, the time that there were people that that's how they identified. Like after school, you would see people literally with their pack of cigarettes rolled up in their sleeve. I'm a smoker. Um, now people are trying to hide it. And, or you have the greasers. Now, if you watch the movie Grease, I am fairly certain guys that worked on cars did not also sing and dance could have happened. I don't know. But there were people who they spent all their time working on cars, racing cars, getting in trouble with cars. Um, Of course, in the 50s, you had jocks or athletes. Um, You had nerds, if you will. Um, Let's fast forward to 1988, when Brian was in high school. Um, You, of course, still had the jocks or the athletes. But in the 80s, we introduced a new group uh, that I I don't know if it's still holding today strongly, but when I was growing up, we had the freaks. And I had friends who were freaks, so don't take it derogatory, Uh, but these were like the long-haired dudes that were wearing Metallica shirts and probably now can't even move their neck anymore from headbanging and stuff. Um, you have the freaks. We stopped using the word nerds in the 80s, and we transitioned to geeks, which is hilarious now because geeks means something totally different. You had skaters. Um, growing up in Texas, we didn't have cowboys or rednecks. We had ropers, okay? Now, they may have been called cowboys or rednecks where you live, but when you grow up in Texas, Justin had come out with their boots at that point in time that were called ropers. And trust me, all my redneck friends had some. And so they were called ropers. So you had all these different groups of people and you identified with somebody and you looked around and you identified people with one of those groups. It's still going on today. But I will say that today it gets even more specific because you don't just think of somebody like as an athlete. Because you wouldn't think of like an offensive lineman on the football team from even being on the same planet from a soccer player. These are very different kind of, of people, right? Y'all with me? Okay, great. 
And so, you know, we have band nerds, but we don't just have band nerds. And I got this as insider info. Like, depending on what music you play or instrument you play, that's the group you identify with. So like the people who play the drums, they don't even associate with the people that play the trumpets. Like, you get out of our sight kind of a thing. Um, but now we have hipsters. We have environmentalists. That cracks me up. Um, no offense. Uh, we have princesses. And just so we're clear, these are not girls who are still fascinated with Ariel and Belle and Cinderella. These are girls that everyone else think are snobby and entitled. And you have punks and on and on and on. And it's sad that I'm sharing all of this with you. It's sad that this has constantly been the case. Um, that it doesn't seem to change that by the time you get to high school, this is always happening. But here's what's even more sad. It, it continues on into adulthood. It's not as blatant. Like, you don't, hopefully, if you do, I really want to know about this, but hopefully nobody goes to Lockheed Martin tomorrow and at lunch there's the freaks at one side of the lunchroom and, and the jocks. It probably doesn't happen that way. But if you're an adult, think about this. If you meet somebody at a, at a casual lunch or maybe on the golf course or somewhere like that, what's one of the very, very first things you're eventually going to be asked? What do you do? What do you do for a living? And you think about it, we, we associate everything like this. In this city, questions get asked a lot of times like, are you military? Um, I get asked about once a week, do you work on the arsenal? Because, you know, that's like half of our city right there. It's a city in itself. Um, you hear things a lot of times like, I'm an engineer, which that's so wide open, it's, it's crazy. Uh, I've shared with you guys before how much fun I have when I meet somebody on the golf course or somewhere like that, and eventually it, it finally comes out. What do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. And then there's all this backpedaling and apologizing for cursing and different things. And I'm always thinking, if you're not afraid to say that in front of God, why are you apologizing to me? Uh, I'm a stay-at-home mom, I'm an accountant, on and on and on it goes. We have somehow been trained to most readily find our identity in how we dress, in what we do for a living, or in the group that we associate most with. Or worse, who we want everybody to think that we are. A lot of times that's really what's being portrayed. What's the big deal? Why is our identity such a big deal? Why is identity so important? Here's why. Who you believe yourself to be will determine how you walk and live your life. Who you believe yourself to be is going to determine how you walk and live your life. And the Apostle Paul says that this answer is found in the person of Jesus Christ. We are in Paul's letter to the Colossians. If you've got your Bible and can turn there, it's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, bang, Colossians. And we are going to start in chapter 2, verse 6. Um, Lee put this scripture in front of us during worship, and you'll notice that it starts with the word, therefore. Well, therefore means, hey, because of what I just said, 
listen to what I'm about to say. So what, what has Paul just said? Let's refresh our memories. Verse 5, he said, Though I'm absent in body, I'm not physically there, yet I'm with you in spirit, and I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul is saying to them, Stand firm in your faith. Verse 6, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. So Paul says that we're not only to stand firm in our faith in Christ, we're to walk in him as well. We're to continually be rooted in and built up in him. And Paul says, walk the way you did when you first came to Christ. Well, how did I come to Christ? What did that look like? Well, you and I could probably, hopefully, can think of maybe some descriptors of that. When I first came to Christ, I was passionate. Um, I was grateful, uh, overwhelmed with gratitude of what Christ had done for me. Um, humbled, uh, knowing like I am absolutely nothing. I would be nothing without God. Wholly dependent on Him. Is Paul alluding to these things? Sure. But Paul is driving at something else here. Paul is saying that you and I must walk with Christ the way that we did when we first came to him, in faith. We have to come in faith. Now remember why Paul's writing this letter. There's this group that the Colossian church uh, is being sort of invaded by called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics, they were teaching that you need Jesus but you need something extra. You, you need extra knowledge and extra obedience so that you can be extra spiritual. So it was like, yeah, Jesus plus. But if you and I, we were faced with the Gnostics today, the first question that I would have for them would be, so how obedient are we talking? If we've got to be extra spiritual, how extra, extra do I need to be? And by the way, who's determining how much extra? Who's developing this criteria? What the Apostle Paul would say about this is, it's hogwash. Look at verse 8. Paul says to them, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That is a jab at the Gnostics, right there. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul says, do not be taken captive. Don't be lured or carried away by deceit. Now, here's the problem with this. Deceit and deception never comes looking like deceit. If deceit showed up today, knocked on your front door, dressed as deceit, you would look out the people and go, no, no, I know who you are. I'm not letting you in. You're deceit. I've heard about you. Sorry, not buying any of that. But that's not how he comes. Deceit never comes looking like deception. Paul has already said in verse 4, don't be deluded by plausible 
arguments. The reason that he says this is because deceit is very often going to, on the surface, sound plausible. Sounds good. Sounds right. Paul is saying if there is even an implication, if there is any implication that you need anything other than Jesus to complete you, to fill you, to save you, it's empty deceit. Remember, verse 10, Paul says, you have been filled in him. Paul has already said in the mind-blowing verse, verse 9, for in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All of God is in Christ. So we understand Christ is the fullness of God and we have been filled by him. We have all that we need in him. I want to talk for a few minutes about plausible arguments. And I'm just going to hone in on how some of these sound in certain other religions and what we might even refer to as cults. Because the fact of the matter is, there are probably, and I'm going to even say hopefully, some people that you and I love, and I don't say that I hope that this is the case with them, but I hope that we are investing in and building relationships with people who need to be brought into the light. There are people that you work with. There are people that live near you. There are people who are going to show up at your front door who have bought plausible arguments and they have been carried away. Let me begin with Mormonism. If two Mormon missionaries show up at your door, what I'm about to tell you, they will never tell you. And they'll not only tell you this, they'll not tell you this because you wouldn't start a conversation like this. They won't tell you this because most of them don't even know it yet. The end goal of Mormonism is for you to become God. Now, ladies, I have bad news for you today. You're out. I'm in because I'm a man. I have the opportunity as a man, to work my way toward and live my life in such a way that in the end, I will become my own God and have my own planet. In the midst of Mormonism, what this does with Jesus is, Jesus is not a savior, Jesus is an example. Because Jesus was the son of God and he did come and he did die for our sins and he's now back with the Father, well, I want to be God as well, so I should follow Jesus' lead. But understand, this totally causes to be irrelevant the fact that Jesus atoned for my sin. My life is not about the fact that I was dead in my sin and now saved and forgiven because of what Christ has done. The aim of my life is I want to be God. That's Mormonism. Um, Seventh-day Adventism is much more prominent in our area, and I will say that it sounds even much more like evangelical Christianity. And a lot of people who are involved in it don't even know the beliefs that lie way below the surface. Let me share a couple of them with you, beginning with investigative judgment. This is an idea that was put forward by one of the leaders of the SDA church, Ellen White. Somebody, and you know, I don't really normally carry on just let's talk out loud conversations here on Sunday morning, but somebody tell me 
what Romans chapter 8 says that Jesus is doing right now. Anybody. Don't make me ask Chad. I know Chad knows. He is at the right hand of the Father and he is interceding on my behalf. The idea of investigative judgment within SDA says that right now Jesus is investigating your life. He's investigating your works. And one day he's going to put them all in front of you. And you will be held accountable. That's not what my Bible tells me that Jesus is doing. And that doesn't even lead into Sabbatarianism, where the SDA church believes that the Jewish Sabbath from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday is the Sabbath. And the fact that I was grilling and cooking out and swimming yesterday, and now I'm gathered with my church body here on Sunday, the the below the surface belief is I'm going to hell because I am not honoring that. Pentecostalism. If you meet somebody who is very, very engrossed in the word of God movement and Pentecostalism, and you ask them, do you believe Jesus Christ is the son of God? They would say, absolutely. Do you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead for my sins? Absolutely. And you'd be like, hey, we're brothers and sisters then. But see, later on, you would be asked, but now wait a minute, have you been filled by the Spirit? And you would say, well, yeah, of course. When I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believed in my heart, God raised him from the dead, the Holy Spirit came upon me. Oh, no, 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 that's not what I'm asking you. Have you received the Spirit through the gift of tongues? Well, wait a minute. My Bible doesn't say that doesn't say that that's necessary for salvation. But Pentecostalism does. Friends, these things are, as Paul calls them, they are empty deceit according to human tradition and according to elemental spirits of this world, not according to Christ. And Paul says, if there is even any implication that you need anything other than Jesus Christ to complete you, to fill you, to save you, that it is empty deceit. And so you and I have to be on our guard. And in order to be on our guard, we've got to know our identity. We have to know who we are in Christ. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. In him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now let's stop there for a moment. What's all this circumcision talk? You know, in my high school, we had jocks and freaks. Imagine you were in the church in Corinth or the church in Colossae and you were in the circumcision group. Like they must be the popular guys. That's kind of weird. But there was the circumcision group. What's Paul talking about here? He's talking about the fact that, yes, God had said, you will circumcise your male children to identify them and set them apart as holy that they belong to me. Why did God do this? Because in Christ, what this was foreshadowing was that Jesus was going to spiritually cut away all the flesh all of it. He goes on, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith 
in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Christ is all that we need. Here's what Paul is saying. We were spiritually crucified with Christ. If you read Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, those are Paul's words. I have been crucified with Christ. We were spiritually crucified with Christ. We are spiritually buried with him and raised with him through our baptism. Now, again, this is something spiritual. Circumcision has never saved anyone. Baptism does not save anyone. We're not saved through that act. We're not saved by water. We are saved through faith of what Christ did working on our behalf. And when this takes place, the Spirit identifies us with Jesus. Okay? This is Brian. Brian died with Christ. Brian was buried with Christ. Brian has been raised with Christ. Brian has been made alive with Christ. And Brian is being made alive with Christ. Did those things physically happen to me? No, they did not. Have they spiritually happened to me? Absolutely, yes, they have. And when we cling to this truth that I have been crucified with Christ, I have been buried with Christ, I have been raised with Christ, I have been raised to walk in newness of life with Christ. When we cling to this truth, we are able to do what Paul said to do in verse 6. Walk in him. That's how we walk in him. Resting, walking, living in your identity in Christ is rooted in the faith to identify with Christ. Okay, me resting and walking in my identity in him, that's rooted in the faith that I have in being able to identify with what he's done for me. Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He dismissed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ." I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about what this means in depth for us. I don't know if your soul is thrilled by the whiteboard, if you care about the whiteboard, if you're a whiteboard naysayer, don't go and start another click or group. Um, I can assure you, though, I will not be using the whiteboard next week. Okay, so if you don't like it, I'll ease your mind already. If you do, I know not everybody's going to be able to see it. Uh, it will be here on the platform even after we're done. Uh, but I want us to try and tear this verse apart and go deeply into it. Paul begins this section of Colossians chapter 2 by saying to us who you once were. He asked the question, essentially without even asking a question, who were you? Here's who you were. Here's what you were. You were dead. We were spiritually dead. We were spiritually uncircumcised. We were trespassers. 
Trespassers get in trouble. Trespassers aren't supposed to be here, but they try to get here. We were dead in our sin until God did something mind-blowing and life-changing for us. What did he do? God made us alive. Who were you? You were dead. Who are you? You're alive. God made us alive. But now Paul, he begins to go through this series of saying, how did he do that? How did God make us alive together with Christ? He forgave us. How did he forgive us? He canceled the record of debt. Imagine that you had incredible debt and that you were about to be in big, big trouble and that you were about to be prosecuted for the debt and you were drug in front of a judge But the judge, you're standing there and you're sweating to death like this is going to be it. And the judge goes through all the evidence and looks at the prosecutor and says, I don't know who you are or what you're thinking, but there's holes all in this evidence. And he looks at you and says, you're free to go. He takes it and he cancels the record of debt. How does he do this? He sets it aside. says, This doesn't even belong on my bench. But see, God goes further than that, doesn't he? Because how did he go about setting it aside? He took it and he nailed it to the cross. Not some cross just sitting out in the field. He nailed it to the cross through Jesus Christ. Peter tells us that Jesus bore in his body all of our sin and shame. It was all nailed there, and it was all left there. But I want you to notice this progression of what happens here. Because the first thing Paul tells us is that you and I, we were spiritually dead, okay? But now, miraculously, we have life. But now, how did this go about? It goes about through this series of legal events, if you will, taking place. You and I, we are now forgiven. You know what else we are? This is a glory hallelujah, I'll tell you. Debt free. Does anybody in this room like the term debt free? Anybody love to say, that's me. I will be as debt free as you can let me be. I'm all over that. Along with this, what else did did God do? He did this by setting aside what I was guilty of. And he did all of that by nailing it to the cross. John Piper does this really cool thing called look at the book. And he uses this, like, I don't know if it's magic or what it is. It's this really cool screen with these really crazy markers. And he'll take a scripture and he'll just pull it apart. And I watched his, his look at the book on this scripture um, a couple weeks ago. And he pointed out the fact that here you have this series of legal events that took place before you and I were ever even born, before you and I ever even had an idea or awareness that we have rebelled against God and that we're dead in our sin, that God did these things so that we might have life. 
And through this series of legal events, you and I now, because we have been made alive in Christ, through the power of God's spirit, we can now love people and glorify God. And it's only because of that. Piper goes on and he says this, because of this great legal transaction, God freely imparts life to us through the Spirit. And now, we can love people and glorify God. Friends, if you don't hear anything else this morning, I pray that you hear this. I have all that I need, and I am all that I need to be in Christ. Period. I have everything that I need, and I am all that I need to be in him. And here's why this is so relevant to us. I think that, again, what you and I might not consider to be plausible arguments that delude us and carry us away are actually that very thing. And here's what I mean. Every one of us in this room at some point in time, we are going to be tempted to find our identity in something other than Christ. I cannot, first and foremost, allow my identity to be pastor. I don't know if y'all are aware of this, but there are some days that I stink at being a pastor. I do. I'm seeing some heads out there. Yes, he does. Some of you stay-at-home moms. You have those days where you're like, I am going to rip my hair out after I rip my husband's hair out. I can't do this. Some of you who are software developers and engineers and accountants and whatever it is that you may do for a living, if you will, you're going to be tempted to believe that that is your identity. Friends, you're going to fail at it some days. You're going to stink at it some days. Some days you're going to be the greatest. But that's not who you are. The thing that matters to me, the thing that nothing can shake or take away, that nothing can change is I am a child of the Most High God because I have been brought from death to life through Jesus Christ. That's who I am. That's who God desires for you to be. But you and I, we're going to be tempted to be seduced and deceived by the plausible argument that we actually are something else. Before I close this morning, I want to address a question that comes up in all of this, and it's a legitimate question that should come up. So, is this everybody? Like, is everyone's sin nailed to the cross? Um, is everyone's debt erased? Is everyone's sin forgiven? The answer is no. Look back at verse 12. Paul says, Having been buried with him 
in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Here's what I'm trying to communicate this morning to you, friends. Those who, through faith, believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that his atonement covered my sin, and because of Jesus, I have been brought from death to life. I am no longer a slave to sin, but I now, through the power of the Spirit, can live my life to the glory of God. That belief in and through faith has saved me. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But then James comes along and says, but you know what? Your faith without works, it's dead. Jesus said, if you belong to me, if I'm the vine, you're the branches. If, if you're in me and I'm in you, you will bear fruit. But it begins in faith. I had two students in my student ministry in Wichita, Kansas, who were really, really smart. And neither one of them could ever seem to fully, mentally, cognitively, empirically wrap their head around what Christ had done. So they just couldn't sell the farm and say, I'm in. I had to bury one of those students. I don't know if Landon is with the Lord or not. But I know that there are things that I believe that I can't fully understand, and that's why it takes faith. If you're here this morning, and you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I simply want to exhort you with the words of the Apostle Paul, as you receive Christ Jesus, walk in him. Continue in your life daily to be rooted and built up in him. Established in your faith, overflowing with thanksgiving. Rest in who you are. You are a child of the Most High God. If you're here this morning and you don't know, maybe you're still waiting, maybe you're debating, I'm just trying to figure out, maybe there's something or someone else out there where I can find hope or peace or joy, satisfaction. I want you to know that I have been praying for you that you today would not just audibly, but that you would spiritually hear the word of the Lord, that you would listen to the drawing of the Spirit of God and that you would heed the call of the Lord. That you would know that Jesus Christ died for you, that you might have life. I want to ask you to bow your heads and, and I would like to read this morning to you the call of God. In Isaiah 55, 
the Lord says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which isn't bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Jesus told the woman at the well who came for a bucket of water, I have water that if you drink of it, you will never thirst again. John closes Revelation by saying, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. If you're here this morning and you don't know where you stand with Jesus Christ, you don't know, or or maybe you do and you know, I need Jesus. First of all, I, I say to you, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But this morning when the service ends, some of our pastors and elders, they're going to be up here at the front. They would be glad to talk with you and pray with you. In just a moment, for everyone here who is a follower of Christ, we have the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper together. And I want to encourage you that if you come alone or with a friend, with your family, however you come, whoever you come with, that you take that bread and that cup and you take a moment to prayerfully remember Jesus' body was broken for us. His blood was poured out for us because he laid down his life. So we take these as the body, his body. We take these together to remember. 
Lord, in these moments, we pray that you would be honored and glorified and lifted up as we worship you together. I want to invite you to stand and and come. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.